Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. We're back in Zurich and have a chat about how to successfully exit your company with serial entrepreneur Mark Burnecker. He already created two successful exits, and today we are going to talk about the process of how to get to the stage. We also talk about strategies of exiting and successfully selling your company. Make sure to check out the additional content of today's episode on our Facebook and Instagram profiles. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SPB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at spbstartup.com. Mark, welcome back to Swisspreneur. It's great to have you again. Yes, pleasure. Today, we're going to talk about the topic of the exit. When you actually exit your own company, there are several ways to do that. And I would like to start with the first question right away. What mistakes do you see Swiss startups making over and over again when it comes to the topic of the exit? Yeah, I would say Swiss startups are not really reaching their potential at the exit because they mostly just talk to Swiss buyers. Mm -hmm. The traditional ones are the publishing houses and we just have a few ones, so I don't have to mention them. Instead of really expanding and broadening the potential lead list, I mean, ideally, uh, that's also a big mistake, perhaps not at the exit, but already before that you normally also just talk to Swiss uh, investors uh, instead of uh, flying to Berlin, London, Paris, wherever, mm-hmm. and also involve international VCs and other uh, uh, shareholders from abroad, which automatically also broadens up the lead list or the potential list of buyers at the end. Because ultimately, uh, if you want to succeed and get a nice exit, you should talk to as many potential buyers as possible. Uh, Either you do it yourself or you have an M&A boutique. And that's perhaps also something which sometimes is missing because there are not that many substantial exits, at least in the tech space, in the web space in Switzerland, that taking uh, support from abroad uh, not from abroad, from, from uh, external support, um, is also very helpful. You mentioned the internationalization when it comes to investors, but also to buyers. When would be a good timing to get that started? Is that something that you should already focus early on, like from the beginning, sort of be global from day one on? Or is there a certain sort of milestone that you should achieve first before you should actually look uh, abroad for investors and, and uh, exit partners? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it really depends on your business case and your vision, ambition, your plan, your markets, uh, your targeting. But um, I think the earlier you uh, have a broad shareholder base, the better. Um, in our case, for example, at Damiando, we had uh, business angels from day one from all relevant markets in Europe, Spain, UK, France, Germany. So that was part of the whole strategy that we knew that uh, if we go not global at the beginning, but at least if we expand to other countries in Europe, we always have a shareholder which can open doors. So, um, and the same, I would say, with uh, 
uh, industries. If you're in a market where you target different industries, it definitely helps if you have one representative in your shareholder base, which is also connected there and has some network and background there. So personally, I think, I mean, it's not about having as many shareholders as possible, but to broaden it up from, from the early days definitely helps. Um, I mean, if you do a pure Swissing, uh, that's also fine. But uh, depending, as I said, on your case, if you have a certain international ambition, you should also have it reflected uh, uh, in your shareholder base. Mm -hmm. I think you touched two very important points. One is the geographical spread of the investors that you work with, that they come from several different countries. In your case, with Amianda, they came from within Europe, but also that they are smart money and can open doors to potential buyers. How do you get to that point? What do you have to do and at what stage do you have to be to, to get that right? Yeah, it also depends a little bit on your business case, I mean, uh, and your network uh, mainly. Um, I mean, you have these traditional high-risk takers which are only investing in, in, in uh, the idea and the team. So that's uh, really the very early stage, like the seed investors. Then you have far more which are uh, at least uh, looking for a working prototype. And then at the later stage, you have the ones who want to see some uh, first customers and ideally some revenues. So depending on the stage you are, you're normally targeting a little bit different investors. Um, I think nowadays what's definitely far different than uh, back in the times when uh, I did fundraising, that you can raise a lot of money without touching any traditional venture capitalists or other institutional funds. That changed really completely. Mm -hmm. We have, especially in Switzerland, a lot of very wealthy and also very entrepreneurial thinking family offices and other non-institutional investors which are especially uh, focusing on startups. So uh, that's all about connections and knowing the right people but uh, that's definitely also a very interesting source um, you can uh, approach. Uh, especially uh, it's far more uh, relaxed, meaning less terms, less um, contract working, less lawyers, um, because most of the funds, um, even if they're founded or the GPs are uh, founders themselves, um, are also depending on their own investors. So it's a little bit a different game, right? Absolutely. And I mean, knowing how it is as a founder to have venture capital funds in a company, it's changing the mindset. I mean, uh, you give away a lot of uh, entrepreneurial freedom in exchange for the money, uh, which is also understandable because the venture capitalist needs some controlling functions. He has to know what's happening. He has to has, have some influence and power to change something if it's going into the wrong direction. On the other side, as an entrepreneur, you normally want to be as independent as possible. Um, I mean, when you look what Google and Facebook did, even after their IPO, uh, that uh, shows a little bit the other extreme that uh, individuals sometimes even have more power than the majority of the shareholders. So that's the other extreme. But ideally, as, uh, from, a, from a founder perspective, you want to be as independent as, as possible. And that's why most uh, of the traditional institutional money is perhaps not the ideal match, especially in the early days. Mm -hmm. How did you maintain this entrepreneurial freedom or flexibility at Amianto with your six co-founders? 
Yeah, as long as uh, the numbers are going into the right direction, you're always very, very uh, uh, flexible and you keep your freedom and that can change quite dramatically uh, on the other side. I mean, it definitely helps if you have uh, uh, a certain diversity in the, in the shareholder base, what I said in the beginning. If you're relying on one single institutional shareholder, which is knowing the game, giving you perhaps... Uh, in a down round, very bad conditions because you were not able to attract additional investors in the better market conditions. That's definitely something uh, which is uh, very uh, bad for, for the founders. So um, having also a diversified uh, a group of shareholders, sometimes perhaps even not having the same opinion. So it's not just bad VCs versus uh, founders. It's also perhaps some VCs have different opinions um, that can help. It can also make it far more complex. Mm -hmm. So that's why, as I said, keep the entrepreneurial mindset. So that could, could even mean that you don't take the best uh, term sheet with the highest valuation, but the one with the most entrepreneurial uh, investor behind. Mm -hmm. When you started Uskang.ch and Amiando, was the exit always your main motivation behind it? And what is your motivation behind the crypto finance group that you set up afterwards? I mean, at usgang.ch, uh, as we talked about in the first episode, there was absolutely no master plan behind. We didn't even have a business plan. So for us, venture capital exit were terms we didn't really know. We just wanted to create a company and earn money with it and build a substantial uh, structure. Um, at Amiano, it was different because everybody had some experience as well and also some exits. There was a clear exit-driven strategy. Mm -hmm. So uh, the whole case, that's why we took investors on board from day one, was set up uh, to somehow at the right stage sell the company. And I mean, at all other projects I'm doing right now where I invest money personally on time, there's always a certain exit Orient because uh, oriented approach because that's the only way where you can get a return. Um, sometimes it's interesting to see that founders build a company, uh, then they sell it, and get a lot of money, and don't know what to do, so they create another company uh, instead of perhaps just keeping and continuing what they already did. Mm -hmm. So this exit drivenness is something which I think sometimes doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. And you see more and more cases which are very profitable, so you can pay out a nice dividend. So why selling a stake uh, of a highly profitable company to, in a normal case, start again from zero without uh, knowing how it's uh, evolving? Sure. So that's why I think it's really depending on your underlying business. Um, but in general, I mean, there's always a certain exit uh, focus. I mean, that's a little bit how the whole private equity venture capital industry is, is, is uh, based on. Mm -hmm. Now you described the, the different approaches with Usgang.ch and uh, with Amiando. Do you have a personal preference for which setup you prefer? Sort of having this passion and just sort of acting out of this passion, don't really think about what could happen afterwards or having this very specific plan to actually strive for an exit and also getting investors on board very early on. I mean, as a founder, I think the first one is far more appealing. As an investor, I don't know if you're always lucky and happy when you have 
uh, no clear roadmap and exit uh, oriented focus. Mm -hmm. But I think from a founder perspective, um, the first uh, approach is definitely uh, far more appealing because you really focus on the daily underlying business and not about uh, the share price, right? So it's definitely a different, a different culture, right? And honestly, if, if I meet founders and they mo talk more about uh, the increase of the share price and the potential exit and the market size, uh, which uh, is a big part of, of, of the evaluation, and less about why they do something, what they want to solve, uh, why they're driven and passionate to do this. Uh, I lose a little bit interest because uh, normally, um, yeah, if you do something successful and passionate and the elements around it are the right ones as a side effect, it's also a successful business, which is interesting to invest in. But if you come from the other side uh, and the passion and ultimate uh, drivers of the founders is missing, I think it's not really a very appealing case to invest. You are also an investor yourself. You invested in several companies. And usually as soon as entrepreneurs get investors on board, these investors expect a certain return. Maybe not tomorrow, but at a certain point in time. <clears throat> how do you deal with that as an entrepreneur? And what are the different ways how to satisfy this uh, sort of hunger for return from an investor. An exit can be one of them, but there are also other ways. Yeah, also depending on your underlying business. I mean, in the tech space, uh, it's mainly uh, the exit, right? Um, but uh, there are, um, for example, in asset management, you can have very interesting, very profitable uh, businesses and you don't have to sell it because you just get after a certain time a nice return every year. Uh, so that's also a little bit depending on your shareholders. I mean, if you have uh, very aggressive venture capital funds, which need a 30x in five years from their investment, um, you definitely have a different strategy than uh, a family office, which is far more relaxed and uh, is in for a 10 year plus uh, time frame. So I think ultimately you shouldn't follow the investors. You should select the investors based on your own preference, right? So uh, it's clearly aligned and you don't uh, create an artificial business case and uh, artificial numbers just to uh, fulfill the requirements of your, of your shareholders. That would probably be the wrong incentivization. Normally that's not working out, right? You also have been involved in an IPO uh, last year in 2018 and you've done two exits yourself with a trade sale uh, in, in both cases. Which case do you prefer if there's any preference from, from your side? Yeah, I mean, I had different hats on, right? I mean, Amiano and Lucian Gautzietscher was one of the co-founders. So I was uh, in this role at uh, Iondo uh, with Next Generation Finance Invest. We were the ma main shareholder mm -hmm. and I was uh, one of the partners of, of, of this shareholder. So it's a purely uh, investor role. So. These are a little bit two different uh, approaches. I think from a founder perspective, um, it's always a little bit uh, uh, artificial idea that you think that you sell your company and then you get money and you just move out. I mean, in reality, you normally have a, a certain uh, lockup period and um, you're still committed for sometimes up to three or four years. 
So uh, you still continue after the exit to work uh, for your company or for the new uh, buyer. So uh, this whole um, separation from a company is normally not uh, like a clean cut. It's uh, more like fading out. How was that in your case? Because you described that you left Amianto pretty soon after the sale. Right? Yeah, right. I mean, I was out of the business when we when we sold the shares, which for me was what I wanted to do. Uh, because as we already talked about, I moved to Munich for this company and my uh, regular life was always in Switzerland. Uh, I had my girlfriend nowadays wife in uh, Zurich. so. For me, I, I wanted to go back to Switzerland, so I was not really interested in any any retainer uh, uh, afterwards. So I had a very clean cut and could immediately start something new and focus on new things. Mm -hmm. But that also means that you left some money on the table, right? Yeah, but that's naturally part of it. I mean, my co-founders, they uh, got some nice retainer and some regular salary, but also left a little bit earlier uh, than originally expected. So. At the end, it's always a little bit about uh, your ambition, if your function, or you can perhaps even grow. I mean, I know also cases where the founders had an even better time after the exit because they could evolve into a bigger company and had some sometimes a better role in a corporate setup. So I think that's a very individual question. Um, but for me personally, I already had some ideas and wanted to move into the fintech space right afterwards. So that was a perfect, perfect setup. And uh, with still four founders uh, continuing uh, to work after the exit for Xing, I think that's uh, also for uh, the buyer a nice setup because normally you don't have that many founders. So uh, it's a, uh, it's a. Uh, I think nobody was really missing me. I had my uh, my my uh, 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 roles were already organized by people um, stepping up, so that was completely well organized. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's 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 very individual. But as I said, normally you have an earnout, you have a vesting, um, so uh, yeah, you have people working years after they sold the company and still. Um, doing their job even after they gave away the shares, and from a, at an IPO, the good thing is that you have uh, immediate liquidity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you can keep some of your shares and follow the company, even perhaps you left it completely. So that's definitely one of the advantages uh, at an IPO um, that uh, there's not normally one shareholder taking off uh, all the shares from the table but you can be still involved, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you can walk us through if you're open to sharing these numbers and or giving us a range. I think our listeners would also be very interested in, in hearing more about what such an exit as you had it with Amiando uh, in the 10 million uh, euro range. What does, does that actually mean to the founders? Would you be open to share some ranges or numbers, what that meant for you personally and mm -hmm. what that could mean for someone who sticks through the whole earnout investing plan approximately? Yeah, it's also a very individual question. I mean, ultimately, I'm sometimes surprised when I see how small the shareholdings are uh, uh, when you see some of these big uh, exits at the moment. Um, and you see that founders sometimes just have one or two percent left. Mm -hmm. 
So because they had so aggressive growth uh, ambitions and raised a lot of money at still high, but uh, ultimately not as high valuations as if they would have done it perhaps in a more sustainable way. So um, yeah, you have uh, a lot of the shares going to the institutional investors and just a small part uh, is still um, owned by the original employees and founders. So um, that's uh, something, I mean, for example, at, uh, at um, Amiando, the founders still had the majority of, of the shares. Um, so that's already a certain indication mm -hmm. that you uh, yeah, were still able to control the company and it was not just a purely um, financial driven case where uh, you had a, a few so-called founders without any shares left, right? Which also is a big trigger after the exit because if you have just a few shares left, the earnout becomes far more relevant. So sometimes even the salary is a, a relevant discussion. But if you still have a substantial uh, stake, I mean, uh, to just as I said, give you the indication of a founding team having more than the majority of the shares at the exit, it's just a completely different game, right? Absolutely. So that's why, but I think there's no general uh, average rule. I mean, I think today it's uh, not that often that you see uh, at least in the aggressive uh, high growth space, founders still owning uh, more than 50% of a company. So normally it's more like in the very low two digit uh, uh, area, sometimes even less. And then the, the metrics are quite, uh, quite straightforward, right? And that's why, I mean, people are also, I think, sometimes a little bit surprised that if you read uh, there's a 200 million exit and you had four founders that people think now they have all the money they need. But yeah, you don't have to be a mathematician to do the math that uh, if you have just 10% left uh, divided by four, that uh, it's still uh, some money, but it's not that you don't have to work anymore. So that's why that's also something I think founders should really keep in mind that uh, devaluation is one thing, but ultimately it's always just the share price and the number of shares you have. So uh, instead of just raising a lot of money, it could also sometimes make sense just to spend it very cautiously and then raise money when you really need it. Because also from an exit perspective, I mean, at the end, you just get what you still have. And uh, also VCs know how to play the game. So sometimes they make a huge uh, round right before an exit. So uh, they get some additional uh, shares with money nobody really needs at the end. So that's why um, this whole game uh, yeah, is a little bit a known, a known uh, skill set you have to know, right? Did you pay special attention to keeping your shares above the majority? I mean, ultimately, I think every founder is always interested in uh, giving away as less shares as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, in our case, we had uh, roughly 20 employees, which also had shares. So to incentivize also the people, I think that's always a big, uh, a big uh, trigger. I mean, we had two people, they left quite right after the exit because they didn't have any earnout element. They were made some money and now they were also free to do whatever they wanted. So uh, 
that's definitely one part. And as I said, I mean, normally as an investor, you want to have your founders with enough skin in the game. So uh, as soon as they fall under a certain level, and you realize that perhaps salary is becoming more relevant than uh, this uh, value of the shares. I mean, that shouldn't be uh, the way how to incentivize your people. I mean, ideally, the founders of a company you invest get insanely rich and you as a shareholder are part of this success, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's not about uh, taking away uh, the upside from the founders. It's more that you yeah, cautiously think about valuation and how aggressively we want to raise money. Absolutely. Now comparing the IPO that he did last year to the exits that he had before that, what do you think, which exit scenario makes sense at what time? Or of course, that also depends on the business model. But in general, if you had to sort of summarize that, when would you say makes an IPO sense? And when does a regular exit in, in sort of a trade sale make sense? Yeah, I mean, in general, IPOs, they just make sense at a certain level, right? I mean, I would say if you don't have a valuation of at least 200 whatever million, mm -hmm. I think, uh, I mean, you can always do an IPO, but uh, then you're just literally too small uh, to, to be listed. I mean, if you want to do it at the serious uh, market, serious exchange. So that's already a first trigger. I mean, if you don't have a company which has a, a valuation like that, it's difficult. Then additionally, I think it's, far more difficult nowadays to do an IPO if you're not profitable. Mm -hmm. So having a valuation like that and be profitable already shows a little bit that it has to be a real serious business, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, also from a, from a business case perspective, I mean, if you do a trade sale in a fast moving and growing tech company, uh, you could be the perfect addition for a big buyer, but the underlying company perhaps never gets profitable. That's okay because you have a, better technology or the buyer can do something with your whole company and uh, by that enabling the value. If you do an IPO and you don't have a sustainable long-term path into profitability, I mean, that's not going to work, right? So I think for an IPO, you really have to have a sustainable long-term plan. Ideally, uh, you're already profitable and it's now about scaling to the next level. Um, I mean, you're visible, all your numbers are public, uh, people are analyzing you, all the activities are visible. So that's why it's, it's definitely a completely different, uh, completely different story. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I mean, we hardly have any examples in Switzerland of, of listed tech companies. What so, do you think? Uh, why is that the case? Because we're just too small company-wise? Yeah, we don't have relevant companies i mean we have relevant companies but not as relevant to be listed i mean we don't have a delivery hero at zalando or some of the other european listed tech companies and that's a pity but uh, that's just a fact and i mean that's definitely something which would help i mean we have a few um, very successful traditional software companies like denemos uh, avalok and uh, leontech uh, in the fintech field, but uh, these are perhaps different models than the ones we uh, are looking for when we see what's happening in Berlin, London, or other other tech hot, hot, uh, hotspots in Europe. Do you think that this should change in Switzerland and that we should strive for development towards this 
London or Berlin startup ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, the more ambitious, the better. Uh, but to reach this ambition, as we also discussed, I think you have to go out of Switzerland. I mean, you can start here. You can have your base here. You can uh, have your smart people here. Uh, but, I mean, you have to go to bigger, more attractive, more scalable markets, right? Sure. I mean, Zalando is not listed because they're very successful in Switzerland. They're very successful here, but... I mean, it's just a small portion of the revenues, right? Absolutely. That's why having Switzerland as a base and attract, attacking uh, all the big markets in Europe, that's at least in the retail space, uh, that should be the, the approach. We also talked about timing in the first episode, and you mentioned that if you had waited a bit longer, because the whole event space was sort of just taking off after you actually sold your company, Amyanto Tuxing, you might have probably had a bigger exit. When do you think does it make sense to actually sell a company or to strive for an exit? Yeah, I mean, one side is the business side. The other side is the uh, sentiment or the setup of the company itself. I mean, as I said, for us as founders, it was a, a perfect opportunity uh, in, in, in this specific case. Um, yeah, uh, at the end, it's also a little bit about how your uh, roadmap and ambition is is uh, is uh, based. I mean, um, if you have a successful company, you get acquisition offers all the time. Now, uh, the shareholders, uh, mainly driven by the founders, have to decide um, when they want to sell and what's the ultimate uh, trigger. Do they just want to get... Uh, as much money as possible um, in a very short time? Or do they believe that uh, they're just at the beginning of something very big? I mean, I remember when Facebook got this, uh, got this offer to sell it for, I think, 1 billion and then another one for 3 billion and everybody thought they're crazy that they're not selling. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, personally, I also thought that's already a very ambitious price and they were in the very early days. Now they have a three-digit uh, billion valuation and still a lot of potential, I, I think. So it's always easy looking back. Mm -hmm. So at the end, it's mainly driven by the ambition of the, of, the, of the shareholders and the founders, right? What role does this ambition by the founders exactly play? Like I can imagine that if you work in your own company very, very hard for a certain time, that maybe after four or five years, you also get a bit tired. And then if there's a not great offering uh, to buy your company, but an acceptable one, that you sort of think, okay, let's let's just do it. What role does that play in having you any personal experience with, with that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a little bit the question of, of the personality of the founders, right? I mean, all the famous tech founders, they wouldn't have to have their uh, full day working day anymore and they already have far more money they could spend, but they're still fully involved and passionate and driven. So uh, I think at the end, it's also a little bit what you want to do in your life, right? I mean, I am personally somebody who always wants to do after a certain time something new. And other ones, they have perhaps found their passion already in the early days and they don't see any limitation. The sky is the limit and they just want to follow the path and stay in their company uh, for 20 years or even longer. So I think that's 
always a little bit uh, depending on the ultimately on the on the desires of of the founders right mm -hmm. i think it's also a little bit depending on your non-business related activities i mean i have two little kids so i really enjoy the time and a far better work-life balance than a few years ago when i had my own companies that i can really also do a lot of things which have absolutely nothing to do with business and i also think it's far more rewarding after having a family to see what's happening um, outside the pure business world if you don't have this and know this you don't realize that and if you have it and you don't like it uh, you perhaps focus on your business again but i think that's also something different i mean if you have a founder with a family it's a completely different uh, 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 setup than a 20 year old something which uh, is fully available uh, flexible location wise time wise um, so also based on that i think you have a little bit a different uh, different attitude to your uh, ambition and how would you structure your daily business life. You also mentioned the requirements to do an IPO exit with 200 million plus valuation and a good long-term strategy for a profitable business model. How would you describe the requirements for a trade sale exit? What are the key factors that you should control there or how do you make sure that you get towards a successful exit in that trade sale area? Yeah, I would say it's also extremely individual. I mean, you have companies, they are acquired a few months after they started. I remember in my time, Stutifout said after 11 months mm -hmm. uh, with close to zero revenue, uh, but everybody just wanted to get uh, exposure into this space. Uh, so I think they had a 85 million exit after 11 months, um, which well, is this quite, quite unique, but uh, yeah. quite crazy. Uh, or also with uh, Instagram and other platforms, I mean, with 16 employees, a billion exit and stuff like that. I mean, these are all outliers, but that's something which can happen if you just have the right product with uh, uh, the right potential buyer in the right time frame. Um, on the other side, I mean, uh, normally you have to show that uh, you have a sustainable business, at least one which is uh, has potential to grow. Mm -hmm. And together with the potential buyer, uh, you can even uh, grow faster and put something on the bottom line of this company. So personally, I mean, but that's a very rough uh, definition. I, I, For me, I always say if you have six-digit revenues a month, it's becoming a business before it's more like you still try to find out uh, what you want to do. And then uh, I would say uh, at, the, at the level of 10 million plus, it's a little bit like uh, in a traditional definition, an SME, right? Mm -hmm. And at this stage, you will always find uh, buyers because then you have achieved something which is also financially tangible. 10 million annual revenue, right? I would say that's a very rough uh, number, right? Because, I mean, normally you want to get acquired by a player who is looking for tech-related companies, so it's not another SME, it has to be something bigger. Sure. So um, that's a little bit like one of the, of the milestones I see. So the six-digit revenue to prove per month, to prove that it's a, it's a business. And then let's say the seven digit one to prove that it's something which is really a long-term uh, uh, business. 
and then depending on your on your funding strategy i mean it's a little bit different to uh, reach a revenue of one million per month organically without any external funding or if you raise 200 million i mean that's also something people sometimes forget if you see some of these numbers uh, nowadays and you don't put it into perspective uh, what they raised to reach these numbers mm -hmm. it's also sometimes a little bit a different uh, game right i mean if you sure. spend 100 million it's not that difficult uh, to get revenues of, of 10 million mm -hmm. uh, you still lost 90 million right so uh, that's why i think that's a little bit like one of the indications also, when you look from a purely market-driven perspective with all these M&A uh, boutiques and other uh, corporate finance and investment banking um, players, I mean, they normally say we need a transaction size of at least 20 to 30 million. So that's perhaps another angle that you at least have to have a valuation uh, and an underlying business which reflects a valuation of that because at this size, you already have an existing M&A corporate finance market. And then once you get into this area of regarding the numbers, then an actual M&A process can start. Can you walk us through how that happened at Amianto? Because you were there as a, as a co-founder, you, you sort of had the first row seat. Yeah, I mean, ultimately process. it was a little bit different there because as I said, Xing was uh, one of our most relevant clients and there was also um, some connection between the founders and, and the team. So it was a little bit uh, a special situation. But I would say in general, I mean, it's all about um, supply and demand, right? I mean, also selling a company or a trade sale of a company is a supply and demand. On the one side, you have uh, founders, people who are willing to sell uh, something, in this case, a, a company. And on the other side, you have uh, somebody who's looking to buy something for several reasons, and you have to match this. And now the question is, as a founder, do you have the resources to really find the right, all the right potential buyers, or couldn't it make sense to involve other ones which are supporting you? Because something people forget, I mean, that's the same with financing rounds, you normally have to invest so many resources, including the ones from the founders, to do a proper funding round and especially a proper uh, exit uh, trade sale or IPO process, that it really also slows down a little bit the other activities. Mm -hmm. So I would say at a certain level, it definitely makes sense to involve external parties which are supporting you in this, in this field, right? Absolutely. And I think people would be surprised that uh, quite a few of the big exits, I mean, normally you don't read about it, but are also supported by intermediaries because they uh, ultimately yeah, guide you and support you on both sides. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, as you have the lawyers uh, on one level, you have the corporate finance people on the other level and they ultimately go through all the details because mm -hmm. As a fully operational founder, you normally have also your daily business to take care of, right? Just to, to go a bit deeper on this process, like after you have this first contacts and, and, and there's maybe a mutual interest in, in going deeper uh, about the whole acquisition and exit topic, 
how does that process look like? Like you first sell, uh, sign an LOI or an NDA, and then you probably go deeper and deeper to the due diligence and price negotiations. Yeah. Can you walk us through this process in terms of steps and also in terms of duration? Because such a sale as it happened with Amianto, for example, but probably also with Uskang.ch is not happening overnight. No, and it's also very individual again, but uh, I mean, after the NDA and the LOE, normally uh, you can share far more information, right? And as a tech company, normally you have a big part of it is the tech due diligence because that's part of the assets uh, the buyer is acquiring. Um, depending on uh, the buyer, you sometimes also do a people due diligence because you want to know uh, because you buy in the whole team right mm -hmm. so what's the background are they fitting into the existing culture of the buyer uh, then you go into all the numbers i mean just because on an excel sheet you have some numbers it doesn't always mean that these numbers are also exactly right exactly. so you have to verify all your um, original theses mm -hmm. And then, um, and that's always a little bit the tricky part because you share everything, but on the other hand, you don't know if you really push it to the finishing line, right? You have to find the, ultimately negotiate the terms. I would say nowadays it's quite common that you implement a lot of uh, KPI based elements. So it's not that you, it's not that often the case anymore that you just have a number. And that's it, uh, but you have some success driven elements. So after the acquisition, you define certain targets and if you reach them or overachieve them, you get some additional incentives. And if you completely fail, the uh, price of the acquisition is, is uh, lower. Um, it's getting very complex when you have a listed company because there everything has to be public, right? So literally you have to announce all the terms so the investors and shareholders know what the conditions of the acquisition are. Mm -hmm. I mean, in our case, when uh, the announcement went out that Xing is buying Amyando, the stock price of Xing went up quite dramatically. So I think they even could refinance with the increase of the value of the company on the paper. At least they could refinance the whole uh, acquisition. So let's say the market said that it was a very good price, um, and yeah, that's a little bit uh, that's a little bit uh, the, the structure, right? And I mean, in general, it's also a lot about people. I mean, if if you have uh, on the buy side and on the sell side, people and it's not matching, I think it's very difficult to finish a process like that because on the one side you have to work for somebody, you have different shareholders and owners afterwards. On the other side. You buy into people and I mean, you can kick out everybody afterwards, but normally it's part of the asset that you have smart people who build something and that's why you buy into it. So I think you have the hard facts and the numbers and everything which is somehow uh, black or white. And then you have also the, the, the human side, which is definitely also a, a big part of it, right? And how long did the overall um, exit process take you at Amianto? How many months? Yeah, that's very difficult to say because we already had discussions with Xing in the very early days. Okay. I mean, the founder of Xing uh, reached out to us when we literally just started the business, not mm -hmm. because he just wanted to buy us, but he said that's something they need and he wants to have us somehow involved. Okay. 
so literally the first contact uh, till the exit was four years in between. Yeah. <laughs> but and that's why we always had a constant discussion and we shared some information and uh, mm -hmm. we knew that uh, there's always a certain natural match. But I think in general, I mean, also depending on the size and the complexity of a deal, I would say uh, a three to six months period is definitely quite normal. I mean, if you do an IPO, it's a different game. Uh, it uh, even takes longer. I mean, especially from the internal decision process till you really uh, are listed. But that's a little bit the time frame, right? I mean, there are also uh, in some extreme outlier events, some very quick activities because, I mean, ultimately it's quite straightforward. You have shares and the price for share. And if somebody uh, convinces all the shareholders uh, to get money for shares, you can literally close a deal uh, at the table in a few minutes. But I think in reality, we have a little more questions to solve than just the share price. So that's why, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very complex process mm -hmm. and also very emotional, right? Because normally, especially when you, I mean, I remember when I uh, put the signature on the share purchasing uh, agreement uh, of, uh, in a law office here in Zurich uh, when uh, Springer acquired Uskang.ch and you knew that this signature, I mean, there were a few ones, but these signatures are ultimately the last step of something you built up from scratch with 3,000 francs and a close friend from school mm -hmm. for uh, close to uh, 10 years, nine years, right? So, and at the end, it's just a signature. I mean, in exchange, you get some money and give the shares, but the ultimate last signature is a little bit like the end of your role as a, I mean, you're still the founder, but yeah, the role changes, right? So that's definitely uh, quite a unique, uh, unique experience. And I mean, differently to financing rounds where the signature uh, just gets money into the company normally for the next step. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a little bit like a more intense act because it's like the beginning of something new, but it's also the end of something. So uh, yeah, it would be interesting to ask other people how they felt when they put the ultimate signature on a contract which sold their shares uh, of, of their own company, right? Absolutely. We'll have some more uh, successful Swiss exits that, we'll, that okay. we will cover in yeah. the interview so we can ask them this mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. I think this is also a very nice ending point with the end of uh, a chapter and starting something new. We also come to the end of this episode. Is there anything that you would like to add that we have not talked about yet regarding the exit? Yeah, I, I, I always say, I mean, the exit is definitely uh, often the ambition and ultimate plan of uh, an entrepreneur. But I think it should evolve out of your uh, other activities. So if you always look into the exit and forget to really run and build something sustainable and successful, you have the wrong focus. So I think the exit should be something which comes as a side element of your entrepreneurial activities, but it shouldn't be the driver and especially it shouldn't be the ultimate reason why you do something uh, because then you lose a little bit uh, the focus on the real relevant stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's a very important part of a life cycle of a company and also a very unique experience but I think uh, you shouldn't uh, focus too much on, on the exit. 
Awesome. I think that's a very nice sentence to end the conversation. Thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time to have a chat yeah, with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. We hope you liked the content. And if you did, please rate us on Apple podcast. We would highly appreciate that. Next week, we'll already be back with a new episode, a Q&A session. Check out our social media channels for handing in your questions to the topic that we will discuss next week and get them answered by top experts out of our network. If you have a burning question, that's the time to ask it and get it answered from professionals. So we hope to see you again next week for an all new Swisspreneur episode.